It's Wednesday, February 15th, 2023, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. Well, I'm the only fellow with that job description. I'm not the only fellow who's doing podcasts these days, and I encourage you to go to our website, hoover.org, and check uh, yourself. Click on the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary. Uh, go over to where it says multimedia. The podcast will pop up. You can subscribe to any or all of them if you want. You can also sign up for our Pod Blast, which delivers the best for our podcast to you each and every month. My guest today is Michael McConnell. Michael McConnell is a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow, as well as the Richard and Francis Mallory Professor of Law and the Director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School. He's also served as a circuit judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. He joins us today to talk about the Supreme Court, including one case in which he is now involved. Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me, Bill. So earlier this month, you and a group of academics and former government officials uh, filed an amicus brief in two cases currently before the Supreme Court having to do with the forgiveness of student loan debt. Uh, I would note that Hoover senior fellows John Kogan and John Taylor uh, also lent their names to this. Taylor is a former Treasury Undersecretary. Kogan is a former Deputy Director of OMB. At issue is a decision by President Biden back in August of last year to forgive about $400 million in debt owed by some 43 million borrowers who financed a college education with the benefit of taxpayer-funded loans. The Biden administration bases action on the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act of 2003, better known as the HEROES Act, which allows the federal government to change student loan programs in response to national emergencies. The Biden plan, which applies to federally administered loans, as I mentioned, calls for $10,000 in relief per borrower, subject to income caps of $125,000 per individual, $250,000 per household. Recipients of Pell Grants can be forgiven an additional $10,000, so up to $20,000 in debt forgiveness is possible. Michael, there are two cases here. One is called Biden versus State of Nebraska. The other one is U.S. Department of Education versus Brown. Would you like to briefly describe those or shall I? Uh, Go ahead. Okay, uh, Biden versus state of Nebraska. Very briefly, this is the question of whether the president's plan violates separation of powers and the Administrative Procedure Act. U.S. Department of Education versus Brown. Brown in this case refers to Myra Brown, uh, a lady who racked up some $17,000 in debt from attending a University of Texas El Paso and Southern Methodist University. That debt is commercially held, so it doesn't qualify under the president's plan. At issue here is a question of procedural rights being deprived because the president's plan didn't include a window for public comment. Michael, that was kind of quick, but I'd get the essence of the two cases, right? That's right. So, and so in, in both of the cases, there are really two sets of questions. One is the merits, is what the president did in forgiving this uh, student loan debt uh, authorized by law or in, 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 and constitutional. But the second and prior question is whether anybody has the right to sue about it. And, and that's a hard question. Right. Let's go through your amicus brief here, and there are three arguments, and I will read verbatim from um, what is in the brief. Uh, Point number one, the framers designed the power of the purse as a check on tyranny. Much of the architecture of the Constitution was designed from the backdrop of a longstanding, you know, centuries-old struggle in Britain uh, between various kings, a lot of them stewards, who wanted to become absolute monarchs along the lines of their friends across the English Channel and uh, against some combination of parliament and the uh, common law judges. And 
At the beginning, the king held most of the cards in this uh, dispute. Going, going back to Magna Carta, though, Parliament controlled one very important power, and that was the power uh, to tax. And it's necessary, although the king had many other sources of revenue from crown lands and other things, uh, as uh, the years went by, it became increasingly necessary uh, for the king to get more revenue, just like our government, right? And the uh, and parliament was able to use its ability to say no to taxes in order to extract uh, more authority across the board. And in the uh, 18th century, just before our constitution, one of the things that had happened is that parliament got control not only of taxation, but also of spending, so that when they uh, gave the king money uh, uh, through taxation, they could dictate to him how it would be spent. And by the time of the constitution, uh, the king could no longer spend without uh, authoriz specific authorization from parliament uh, in the form of a budget. Well, when our framers were designing the constitution, they wanted to make sure that we didn't make again, any of the mistakes of the past. And so they understood how important money is and spending is, not just to the economy, but also to democracy itself, uh, that if the executive branch can simply decide uh, what to spend on and doesn't, and that the executive branch doesn't have to go to Congress for authorization, then you know, the president can do pretty much uh, whatever he wants. And they made they inserted two provisions in the Constitution to ensure uh, that Congress, not the president, would have the power of the purse. Uh, one is the very first clause of the portion of the Constitution that gives Congress powers. This is Article 1, Section 8. And so the clause one uh, gives Congress, not the president, the power to tax and to provide for, meaning make expenditures for uh, the common defense and general welfare. So that it is Congress that gets to decide how to, how to uh, spend money uh, just as parliament had uh, gained that power uh, across the pond. But that wasn't enough. Um, they, 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 so important was this that they added a second clause uh, in Article 1, uh, section nine, stating that no appropriations may be drawn from the treasury except pursuant to law, meaning uh, an, an act of Congress. So not only did they affirmatively give Congress the power, they affirmatively uh, provided that uh, no one else would be named the president would not be able to spend money without authorization uh, uh, from Congress. So that is actually the only provision of the constitution where there's a double protection. Uh, and I think that's a sign of just how important this is because a president with unlimited spending power is essentially a president with unlimited power. All right, the second point of the amicus brief, executive encroachment on the power of the purse threatens constitutional order. Unfortunately, and especially in the last three or four presidencies, uh, presidents have gotten it felt stymied when they go to Congress and ask for an appropriation for you know, some operation that they think is really important. 
uh, and Congress doesn't. Congress doesn't spend the money, doesn't authorize the money. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, uh, of late, it has become somewhat common uh, for presidents of both parties just to spend the money anyway. So in the amicus brief, we give examples from uh, from George W. Bush, which uh, at, at the height of the economic collapse, he went to Congress to uh, ask for bailout money for the automobile companies, uh, just al along with the banks. And Congress said, no, they, they did pass, uh, or you may remember TARP, the TARP legislation, right. which provided subsidies for uh, banks for, that were collapsing at the time. Well, what did President Bush do? He said, well, let's just define automobile companies as financial institutions. And if they are financial institutions, then we can support them too. So Congress has said, no, you can not bail out the automobile companies and President Bush did it uh, anyway. Uh, and uh, there was a similar incident under uh, President Obama when uh, when the Obamacare legislation looked like it was going to uh, place a lot of obligations on health insurance companies, and he wanted their political support for the program, uh, and he asked Congress to provide a subsidy, what basically hold them harmless for certain losses uh, that might take place, and Congress said no. And uh, again, um, using stretching uh, language in the statute really beyond its breaking point, uh, President Obama did it anyway. The House of Representatives took him to court and the court held that indeed Obama did not have this authority uh, and that it was unconstitutional for him to spend it without congressional authority. Uh, unfortunately, by that time, uh, $7 billion had already left the Treasury never to uh, return. Uh, President Trump was uh, no, uh, no more scrupulous about staying within his lane. Uh, most people remember the, all the back and forth of, about the wall. The example we use on the uh, amicus brief is uh, where uh, President Trump wanted to be able to uh, use money to uh, provide additional unemployment uh, compensation. Uh, and uh, Congress was at, at loggerheads. One party wanted to give $200 a, a month and the other wanted to give four, $600 a month. And so they ended up not passing a, a bill. And so Trump just spent it anyway. He decided on $400 a month. Let's just split the difference. But it's the same uh, general uh, principle. But now President Biden's uh, student loan forgiveness program is by far the largest ever. Uh, the magnitude of this expenditure is, uh, it staggers the imagination. It's, uh, it's been, uh, the CBO has estimated uh, that it will uh, add uh, uh, over $450 billion uh, to the deficit this year. Uh, when, when we're contemplating you know, how long the, it's going to be before we hit the debt limit. Well, uh, several months of that is this very uh, act. Just to put it in proportion, so 450 some odd billion for this, the entire budget for K through 12 education is $128 billion. And, and yet by the 
and, and that's goes through committees. It's debated. Congress passes it each year. It's a, you know, the size of that is they bicker over it. But uh, uh, this was just done uh, through uh, the, the stroke of a pen. We'll talk in a moment about the legal excuse given for this. But the what's really fundamental about it is that. Uh, presidents have a certain leeway in interpreting statutes passed by Congress. Uh, and I think there used to be a little bit more of a sense of responsibility among lawyers in the executive branch that, you know, they had a duty. They don't work for the president. Their duty is to the American people to make sure that the laws are, uh, are being uh, interpreted properly. And I think part of the partisanship of recent years has been that that has been in decline. And so instead of asking what did Congress really intend to fund with this bill, uh, they sometimes ask themselves, well, what, what can we get away with? And so in this case, uh, President Biden, uh, after, you know, I think there were 80 bills that were introduced in Congress, all of them turned down. And so then they scrounge around. There, there was one theory, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren urged one way to do this and the lawyers looked at it and said, that was, that, that's a bridge too far, even, even we can't agree to that. And then out of, they came up with a new theory that no one had imagined. They found a, two, a 2003 statute that was passed for the purpose of, uh, of dealing with the military deployments uh, to Iraq and Af Afghanistan. Uh, if, if, so here you have um, uh, military people, you know, who are being taken away from their ordinary employment, sent abroad, and, and the president is authorized to modify their student loan agreements so that they don't suffer any direct uh, economic loss as a result of the deployment. Uh, the statute actually uses the word direct twice. It has to be, a, a, you know, direct losses that are directly caused uh, by the uh, emergency. But Congress didn't want to limit this just to the Iraq and Afghanistan incursions because they were expecting others too. So they, they refer to, uh, uh, to the military situation and then they uh, say, and, uh, and disaster relief and other emergencies. Right. And that's, uh, and, and that's the HEROES Act. The HEROES Act. That's right. That's the HEROES Act. Right. Right. But the key phrase here is national emergency. Right. Right. Now, under the Emergencies Act, the president can name all kinds of things as emergencies. Right. Um, and there are a number of them that have been around for decades. Uh, and the under, one, one might think, looking at the HEROES Act, that this has to be uh, using the legal principle that we call uh, a justum generis, which is, you know, which is when you have a list and there's a, a general term at the end, you interpret the general term as being, you know, in, in like situations, uh, you might think that it would be limited to like situations, but, you know, the COVID, it's undoubtedly COVID was an emergency, uh, but it is not like uh, the other things. But I think there's another point here that is even more, uh, uh, more clear, which is that the statute limits the beneficiaries of this, these changes in student loans uh, to those uh, directly affected. And yet, 
Um, there are lots and lots of people who have been directly affected by COVID, including people who hold loans, small business loans, right. uh, uh, for example. Uh, college graduates were affected like everybody else, but less so. I mean, all the evidence is that is that the people who really were profoundly affected economically by COVID were those who provide in-person services like you know, house cleaners and people in the, in the store and, uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, gardeners and construction workers and, and uh, nail therapists and barbers. And, you know, and uh, those of us who sit in front of, of computers for a living were the least affected by uh, COVID. And yet uh, nobody else got the benefit. This is, uh, it seems pretty clear that the beneficiaries here were simply a Democratic Party constituency and not people who were most directly affected by the uh, COVID emergency. Plus, as you know, Michael, a very specific class of people who have government-held loans because what Myra Brown in her case is after, she has $17,000 in debt but it's commercially held debt, so she doesn't benefit from the president's plan. That's right. So it's uh, it's only those who have government right. uh, loans, yes. All right. Michael, can you explain to me what the major questions doctrine is and how that applies to these cases? Well, I can. In our brief, we don't actually invoke this because it is a fairly recent doctrine in the Supreme Court and has and has its critics. But the basic idea is this. When interpreting... Uh, of an act of Congress uh, that where the language might, if you squint at it properly, extend to a a particular situation. Uh, The major questions doctrine is that if this is a really big, important deal, uh, it's unlikely that Congress intended that to follow from ambiguous language. more colorfully, the Supreme Court used to uh, use the expression uh, uh, that uh, you don't hide elephants in mouse holes. So some of us like to call this the elephants in mouse holes uh, canon of interpretation. It's really the same thing. And it's really a common sense idea that uh, when trying to uh, interpret the intent of Congress, that if Congress meant for the president to be able to spend over $450 billion, uh, they would have said so. But we, as I said, didn't rely on that because we we don't, first of all, we think it's not necessary and we think it's distracting because that doctrine has itself uh, gotten, uh, you know, as a matter of contention. Uh, and Congress has passed a specific sta- a statute that says uh, that, appropriations bill, spending under an appropriation bill is not authorized unless the spending is is specifically mentioned. And so there's already uh, a requirement in statute passed by Congress that requires a specificity. Uh, So uh, we thought it was not necessary to invoke uh, any uh, general uh, canons of interpretation. So how do you expect the court to rule here? Well, I... I, if they get to the merits, I just would be very surprised if they did not hold that this is unauthorized. That this is a this is really a stretch. Um, and if they say that the Heroes Act authorizes this, it's off to the races for future presidents 
because this is such a this would be such an attenuated uh, interpretation. I think it's much harder to predict whether they are going to allow anyone to sue over this. This is called the doctrine of standing. Right. Uh, and no one can sue in federal court uh, unless they have standing to sue, which generally means that they have themselves been injured by the act. Our brief explicitly does not take a position on the standing question because we, the, the signatories on the brief, don't claim any expertise about that. That's a sort of legal and jurisdictional uh, question. Our, our signatories are all people who have been involved in administering uh, appropriations statutes and spending statutes. I, I'm on there because I was an assistant general counsel of the Office of Management and Budget, but we have, we have three directors of the office, former directors of the Office of Management uh, and Budget, uh, two former uh, attorneys general, several other treasury and OMB uh, officials. Uh, and, uh, and that's where our expertise lies. Uh, the standing question is tough. Um, in recent years, uh, ever since uh, the, the, a case against the Bush administration called Massachusetts against EPA, in which Massachusetts sued to try to require the administration to recognize um, carbon dioxide as a pollutant under the Clean Air Act. Uh, and, and in the course of that, uh, the opinion of the court on a five-fourth decision written by uh, Justice Stevens uh, the court said that uh, when states sue, they will get, quote, special solicitude. And since then, there have been, there has grown uh, this enormous phenomenon of state attorneys general suing uh, presidents of the opposite party and trying to stop various um, uh, executive or presidential uh, initiatives. And this got going on, uh, toward the end of the Obama administration. It accelerated under Trump, and now it, we're uh, we're still uh, it's accelerating again uh, under Biden. And essentially, Republican AGs sue Democratic presidents, and Democratic AGs sue Republican presidents, and they can and they go to a favorable judge. You can often predict which judges are going to be more likely to right. to. Uh, uh, go. So they go to a favorable judge, then they get a nationwide uh, injunction, and and it, this may very well be overturned. A lot of them are, but it takes several years. And if you can stop uh, presidential initiatives in their tracks for several years, that's that's pretty much of a victory. And so this the Supreme Court could use this case as an opportunity, not so much to talk about the separation of powers problem with spending, but a very separate kind of separation of powers problem with states uh, uh, using their positions as states in order to stymie a federal policy. Now, in this case, uh, Nebraska, actually it's Missouri is the lead state. I don't know why Nebraska is the one in the title, but Missouri has a state-owned a student loan financing agency right. that just loses money as a result of this. Uh, it's a straightforward dollars and cents loss. And so uh, Missouri asserts that it has standing to assert the authority of this or the, the, the injury against this 
agency. The complication, the reason that's difficult is that uh, this agency is a separate agency and its, uh, its debts are not held by the state. It has a separate board. Uh, it has the right to sue and be sued and it chose not to sue. And so the question becomes, you know, does a state uh, and the state attorney general stand in the shoes of, a, of an agency that is an ostensibly independent part of the state government. And there's never been a case quite like that before in the Supreme Court, making it a little difficult to predict. And then there's this other uh, student loan holder from, you know, private student loan holder. And her argument is uh, that she's essentially being discriminated against. That's right. She, her, she's, Quite, she's just like the others in terms of her need and that she didn't get the benefit. And she's putting this primarily as a procedural point. She says that had the administration done what the Administrative Procedure Act requires, which is put this proposal out for notice and public comment, right. that she would have been able to uh, argue in that proceeding uh, that uh, they shouldn't be discriminating against, uh, you, know, uh, if, you know, for some people and uh, against others within uh, the class of potential uh, recipients. So that's so we'll see whether either she or the states have standing. So nine justices on the court. Michael six um, depicted as conservative, uh, nominated by by Republican presidents. Three seen as progressive. Let's look at the three progressives. Uh, I assume they will vote uh, together. I assume they'll support the administration. Uh, if so, Michael, what legal rock will they cling to? First of all, I, I'm not so cynical as to say we know. They, we don't <laughs> okay. know that they'll be in, in lockstep. They haven't always been. Uh, and Really? It seems, uh, it seems like they usually are. No, nope. They usually are, yeah. but I also think that you know the, the Supreme Court has been looking more as a like a partisan divided institution. And I don't think the justices like to be thought of that way. I, it's at least possible that they will uh, make more of an effort uh, to you know, draw back from, this, uh, from these partisan splits and find uh, uh, grounds for agreement sometimes. But, um, but in any event, I think the rock that they would cling to is probably standing. They will probably... Uh, a vote to say that uh, uh, that these particular plaintiffs do not have standing to bring these challenges. And who do you think would take the lead on the other side? Would the chief um, write the majority opinion, or would you look for another justice to do it? This is the sort of case that I would think he might assign to himself. As chief justice, he is the senior uh, person on any majority and can decide who writes the opinion. And right. this does seem like the kind of case that would be of particular interest to him, and and where and and he has a particular skill at uh, writing opinions that are uh, that don't go fly off flying off to the extremes. And right. I think he might want that here. Okay, let's shift, uh, Michael, and look at three cases before the court. Right now, you drew these to, the, uh, to my attention, so these are ones that you're following. Obviously, case number one, Michael, is Moore v. Harper. Uh, this is the state of North Carolina struggles with redistricting. Uh, Tim Moore is the Speaker of North Carolina's House of Representatives. Becky Harper is a realtor living in the Research Triangle who volunteered her name. Uh, she is also very passionate about um, gerrymandering. She's a member of Common Cause. 
Uh, at issue here, elections clause in Article One, Section 4 of the Constitution, whether state legislatures alone are empowered by the Constitution to regulate federal elections without oversight from state courts. Michael, the ACLU declared this is nothing less than, quote, the case that could upend democracy. So there's been a lot of hyperventilating about this case. Um, I do not think it's going to upend democracy. I think that's really, I think people like to uh, imagine that whatever is happening today is like the most important thing that right. uh, ever happened under the sun. Uh, the, the way this case comes down is the constitution unambiguously gives the, uh, the authority uh, to regulate the elections, which would include the right drawing of districts, to quote state legislatures, mm-hmm. uh, not to the states, to the state legislatures, and in other provision of the Constitution, there are other instrumentalities of state government that are also mentioned by name. Sometimes they mention the state governors. They right. sometimes they mention state judges. The, uh, in uh, in the supremacy clause. Uh, elsewhere, they mention uh, uh, conventions, the constitutional conventions of the states. So the Constitution does seem to speak. And then there are other places where it refers simply to the state. So it seems as though the framers of the Constitution knew how to say state when they meant state and knew how to refer to particular entities uh, of the state government when they intended to do that. In this case, they speak of state legislatures. Mm-hmm. And the, in, in the briefing, the two sides in the case went to the extremes. So uh, one side, the, uh, uh, the, the plaintiffs against the so-called the apparent gerrymander, I'm not, we don't, this isn't about the merits of whether there was really anything wrong with the plan right. or not, but, um, but that side takes the position that we should just ignore the specification of the state legislature and treat it as if it said state. So they, that's a pretty am, ambitious thing to say that we just ignore the language. The other, but the other side takes the opposite and I think equally extreme position. So they say when, this, when the state legislature is mentioned, that means the state legislature alone, that it isn't governed by uh, the constitutional limitations of the state constitution, including uh, any judicial review by the state courts under the state constitution. And um, that too is a very odd idea that uh, when the framers refer to state legislatures, in, in or, you would think that that means the state legislatures as they exist, and these are not or not entities that just sort of spring out of the mind of Zeus. These are set up by the state constitutions and they have their, their procedures and their powers are set forth in the state constitutions. And uh, I th- it would take more than just the reference to state legislatures to persuade me uh, that uh, the framers uh, meant that the legislatures are suddenly liberated from uh, the constraints uh, of uh, of state constitutional law, and, and at the oral argument, so that was so that, those are the briefs, and I think that's why right. you had so many people uh, like panicking and saying, "Oh, if if one if this extreme position is taken, it's going to be the end of the world." Uh, the Supreme Court is is not 
interested in these extremes. This is this became very clear in the oral argument that uh, no members of the court were buying the claim that the legislatures could just do whatever they wanted. Uh, instead, they were exploring a number of uh, plausible uh, intermediate positions of which the, the main one that they were uh, exploring was some, uh, the, the idea that uh, if, if the state court reviewing the uh, action of the state legislature was within a zone of reasonableness such that it looked like this was a actually a good faith interpretation of the constitution, uh, that that would go, but that in the unusual case, if a state uh, court just sort of a, usurped the power of the legislature uh, and said, uh, well, we're the court, we're going we're gonna to do this for ourselves, uh, that a federal court would have the authority to step in. Now, whether this particular North Carolina uh, case is an example of that, it's, uh, you know, reasonable minds presumably differ. Now, I offered with a co-author, um, uh, Bill Bode of uh, University of Chicago, an uh, uh, outside piece, not a brief, but a scholarly essay, uh, another possible middle ground, which rather appeals to me and to Will Bode, that these, these should be interpreted as requiring that the actual um, districting or actual regulation of the elections be done by the legislature, subject fully to judicial review in the state court, but that the state court cannot itself issue a new map. So in a, in a districting situation, sometimes the court just uh, hires a, uh, an expert witness, supposedly nonpartisan, and then um, and then draws up their own map and, and institutes that. And our position is that that does seem to be contrary to the U.S. Constitution when it says state legislature, uh, and uh, that that's how, how the Supreme Court ought to interpret it. And that would make this kind of judicial review the same as what we have in almost every other area of the law. Because if a state court or a federal court, for that matter, holds that a statute passed by a state legislature is unconstitutional, they do not write a new statute and put it into the books. What they say is what you did is unconstitutional and it's, it's, you have to fix it. And, and our position is that that would be the same. Uh, now there are some practical issues involved in that, but as a means of making sense of the words of the Constitution and the intent of the Constitution, uh, uh, we're persuaded by that. Uh, Supreme Court didn't show any particular interest in that theory either. And Michael, how would this ruling affect the 2024 election? Well, it's hard to know, um, but there are those who fear that state legislatures will run amok and simply, if, if they don't have, if there are no constraints on them from, right. uh, from their state courts, they will uh, draw district lines, which are wildly unfair. But in presidential elections, they might 
uh, decide not to award electoral votes to the winner of the popular election, but instead of the to the person that they wanted. And of course, the uh, the antics of some of the Trump supporters after 2020 are going to lend some weight to this because that is what some of some of them wanted the state legislatures to do just that. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's more significant that not a single legislature came even close to doing that. I, I, I the uh, and I think it the idea that this is actually going to happen, you know, presupposes a degree of of skullduggery uh, that I think is a, uh, is not very likely. I mean, the real story I think of the uh, of the Trump election um, uh, shenanigans. Uh, is that uh, a, a tiny handful of private lawyers outside of the White House Counsel's Office, outside of the Justice Department, uh, came up with some wild schemes that were blocked by every responsible official, including Republican governors, Republican legislatures, Republican election heads, Republican judges, Republican um, uh, Justice Department officials, everyone. And uh, I, of course, you know, what, what was tried was, was nefarious, and we shouldn't forget that, but it was also feckless and stupid and unsuccessful, and we should rejoice at just how powerful the checks are in our system against that sort of thing. Okay. And, and the worry, and the worry is that the state, if the if the Supreme Court were to hold that state legislatures have unchecked power in this area, that it would uh, feed into this kind of a plan. As I say, I don't think there's much of a chance that they're going to go that way. Right. Let's move on to the second case, Michael, and that is three o three Creative LLC v. Elenis. Three o three Creative is a Colorado business that specializes in website development. Uh, it wanted to branch out to making wedding announcement websites, but the owner of the company said that doing so for same-sex marriages violates her Christian faith. She wanted to put a disclaimer on her website saying she wouldn't do same-sex weddings. She soon discovered that doing so would violate a Colorado anti-discrimination law. So here we have a case, Michael, and the question whether applying a public accommodation law to compel an artist to speak or stay silent violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment. Yeah, so these cases have been coming up in the system ever since uh, uh, the Supreme Court decided in Obergefell that there's a constitutional right to uh, same-sex marriage. Right. And I have to say, I don't understand why uh, someone would want to have a cake baked for their weddings and take their pictures and design their websites by somebody who doesn't believe that that they should be allowed to get married. I think these are phony cases, um, and I think they're actually designed not to get the services, but rather to uh, um, to uh, get in the face of of the very small number of people who dissent from uh, the ruling. And we'll see. Uh, there have been the last time this came to the Supreme Court, it was about a baker mm-hmm. and the court. Uh, resolved it on the ground that there were a bunch of anti-Christian bigoted comments made by the commissioners in the course of adjudicating the matter and that and that kind of biased decision making um, made it 
uh, required them to reverse the decision. That's a kind of one case only uh, decision. Uh, I think many of the same issues are back. This time there's a more solid uh, conservative um, majority. And I, I think it's a rather likely, I don't like to be in the position of predicting, but it is, I right. think, rather likely that the website designer is, is going to win. And I think she should win because uh, people who uh, engage in uh, expressive activities, even as a business, uh, I think have a right not to have their voices you know, uh, co-opted to say things that they don't, uh, they don't believe in. I think that's... Uh, I think that's true of lawyers who don't have to take clients that they don't for causes that they don't believe in, um, and and everybody else. Uh, and there's a dis the distinction here as to the anti discrimination laws is that this website designer has said she will work for anybody you know straight gay it doesn't she's not discriminating the basis who of who they are. Right. It's that she disapproves of. Uh, of same-sex weddings, marriages. Right. She thinks that they are contrary to God's uh, uh, commands for uh, for His people, and and she doesn't want to be in the position of designing something to celebrate and praise uh, something she doesn't believe in. And uh, the real problem here is that the Colorado courts interpreted the Colorado law to mean something it doesn't say. The Colorado law is meant to be about uh, who you, it, it, it interferes with the right of somebody to decide who they're going to deal with, but it doesn't interfere with their right as to what they're going to say, what, what kind of product or what kind of service they're going to uh, they're going to provide, but state courts have authority over state law, so the Supreme Court uh, has the case, and my guess is that they're going to find that uh, the First Amendment is a bar to this uh, peculiar interpretation. And if the court comes out, Michael, with a very strong statement about the First Amendment, does that put a chill on these kinds of cases, or is this just something that society is going to have to play out for the foreseeable future? My guess is as soon as they decide the case, we're, they're not, these are going to fade into the woodwork uh, because I don't actually think most of them are real cases anyway. I don't think that uh, gay couples want someone who doesn't approve of your being able to get married. Yeah, well put. Okay, let's go on to uh, uh, the third case here. This is National Pork Producers Council v. Ross. Uh, at stake here is the constitutionality of California's Proposition 12, uh, passed in 2018. That was the so-called Farm Animal Confinement Initiative, supported by Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't know if Michael McConnell supported it as well at the time or not. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres, this is back when Ellen was nice, when we liked Ellen, not her current kind of villainous role. Ellen cut a video saying, hey, California, if there's two things I love, it's animals and kindness. That's why I love Prop 12. Here's what Prop 12 did in a nutshell. Uh, it established minimum space requirements based on square feet for calves raised for veal, breeding pigs, and egg-laying hens. In the case of pork products, Michael, Prop 12 prohibits the sale in California of pork products when the seller knows or should know that the meat came from the offspring of a breeding pig that was confined in a, quote, cruel manner, cruel defined as 24 square feet of living space or less. So here, Michael, we have the question of whether states can pass laws that discriminate against interstate commerce, in this case, out of state companies being able to work in California? So this is a hard case, uh, but I, I think if the court thinks about 
the issue beyond animal rights, because this could be anything. Right. Essentially, what California has done is that it has passed a law um, regulating the conditions for under which you know pork can be raised and is applying it nationwide, not just in California, but nationwide. Mm -hmm. It is literally sending inspectors around to other places in the country to, to see whether farmers are complying with California law right. in places like Ohio. And the penalty for violating California law is your, your, your port can't be sold in California. Right. Uh, and I, it's my view is that that is a form of extraterritorial regulation uh, in a violation of, in this case, the Commerce Clause. Actually, I think the extraterritorial principle applies under a number of different clauses, depending on what it is that the government is doing. So uh, if the government were to make, uh, let's say California wanted to make it illegal, a criminal violation to treat uh, pigs poorly, uh, that would then be a, 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 in, in Ohio and brought charges based, that would be a due process violation. If what they said is no farmer who, who doesn't comply with our regulations can come to California, that would be a, a right to travel violation. There, I, I, in this particular case, it's a commerce clause problem uh, because it's about this, the, it's regulation of goods that flow in interstate uh, commerce. Uh, and if, if this case comes out in favor of California, I think our culture wars are going to become much worse than anything we've seen because the states have not done this sort of thing in the past. It's this right. is a new thing. And so California could, for example, uh, say uh, the whole country has to comply with our minimum wage. And so, you know, nobody's, uh, you know, I don't know, let's say you're, you, you, you make jackets, you know, uh, you, 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 your jackets can't be sold in California unless they were made in conformity to California's minimum wage or they, California could pass a, a statute about the e imposing ESG rules, these, uh, uh, environmental governance and, uh, uh, and uh, whatever it is. Yeah, I forget what the S stands for, but the basically right. woke rules on companies. And, uh, and they can do that for California, uh, but uh, this way they, can, they could govern the whole country because California is such a huge market. It's 13% of the market for pork. Uh, uh, companies elsewhere would have to comply with California law but let me tell you, if California does this, Texas is going to do it too, only it's going to be opposite rules. And, uh, uh, and if, if we have, if, Cal if all the big states, California and Texas and Florida and New York and Illinois, all are passing ideological um, uh, legislation and expecting the entire country to have to conform to it on penalty of not being able to sell their goods in these large states, we have completely destroyed uh, the common market uh, that uh, the framers intended in the constitution. One of the key things that they were doing when they created the constitution uh, was to make this one economic market uh, and, and not to allow 
uh, the states, the squabbling states to, uh, uh, to be able to be little uh, economic fiefdoms throwing their economic weight around. Now that said, uh, there's no real precedent to support this. And uh, I, I, it's, it's gonna be a hard sell in the Supreme Court. Right, and you call this a sleeper case because this, at the end of the day, this is about much more than just pigs and hens and eggs. Much more. I mean, it's it's just astonishing to me that various publications, National Review, for example, uh, talking about this case, it was all about you know treating pigs well. I, you know, I'm not all for treating pigs well, uh, but I'm not for letting California legislate for the entire country. Right. Well put. Uh, a few minutes left, Michael. I'd like to turn your attention to the court itself. I didn't mention in the beginning uh, part of your bio, you were a clerk on the court at one time, correct? Uh, many years ago. Well, we'll say how many, but you clerked for Brennan? That's right. Okay. Well, uh, it's been years since you've been there. I'm kind of curious your thoughts about how the court's going about its business these days, because last summer we had the leak of the draft opinion on um, the case overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, the shock over that, uh, the court then commissioned an investigation. Its report came out, I think, in January, Michael, a uh, 20-page report that came with few conclusions at the end. They never found out who leaked it. Um, they Some interesting uh, side notes there. They they interviewed a few justices. They talked to a few clerks who said they actually they talked to some friends about the case and so forth, but they didn't actually find a culprit or for not. Um, I'm just curious your thoughts about how the court's operating in the aftermath of that. If everyone's getting along well, you think, if there's any kind of tension, if or if that was just a blip in the in the greater scheme of the Supreme Court. Well, this isn't something that we on the outside can know for sure. Right. I, I, I would guess that this is the sort of thing that is could be quite poisonous uh, within the court. Now, if the justices all knew that... The, that their fellow justices had nothing to do with it and they're just as mad as they are and had taken every possible steps with their clerks, well, then maybe it wouldn't be a problem. But uh, my, my, I think it would be just a normal human thing for, for many of them to be looking over their shoulder and saying, well, I just don't know. Uh, and one of the peculiarities about this controversy is that people on the left tend to say, well, I bet it's one of the conservatives who did this and they have a theory. Uh, and then, you know, the people on the right say, I, it's got to be one of the you know, progressive liberals on the court uh, that did this and they have their theory. Everybody assumes that the other guy is much more uh, uh, skullduggerous than, than we are. And, um, and this kind of unsolved mystery is just it's just pours gasoline on the fire of of, uh, of uh, distrust you were clerking pre-internet days so how would you have leaked something if you had the opportunity and the motive to do so would you have smuggled it out of the supreme court and underneath your clothes and then run to the local kinkos and xerox it and then like all the president's men drop it off in a garage or yeah that's, yeah that's exactly what i mean and it wasn't wouldn't have been hard to, to <laughs> smuggle it out. I don't know what they're they they don't search people for paper on the way out. I think it would be relatively easy. And one of the things that's interesting about this particular leak is that it was not an electronic digital copy that was leaked. Right. It's actually a scan of the paper copy that was leaked. So 
we know that it was that somebody actually, you know, took out their camera and photographed each page. And I, 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 whoever it was, was able to disguise their tracks pretty well. Okay. Uh, a couple of thoughts uh, for you, Michael, on ethics. The American Bar Association adopted resolution recently urging the Supreme Court to enact a code of judicial ethics similar to what lower courts are beholden to. Uh, a couple of senators sprung into action. Senator Chris Murphy, he's a Connecticut Democrat, uh, authored a bill that would establish a statutory ethics officer and a process for filing complaints against justices for violating ethics rules. Sheldon Whitehouse, he's a Rhode Island Democrat. He uh, filed a bill, he authored a bill, Michael, which includes a complaint process and creates a panel for reviewing justices and discretion. So tell me what's going on here. We're concerned about courts, about the ethics of the justices. Is this, is this, re, is this a reaction, Democrats reacting to Clarence Thomas, or is there something bigger going on? So I remember there are complaints back in 2016 about Ruth Bader Ginsburg being very vocal about Donald Trump. So, you know, there, there are complaints about uh, on both sides. Uh, uh, have been for a long time. The, the, the issue here isn't really the substance. The justices uh, claim to be following basically the same substance of ethical rules uh, that are applicable to the lower courts. And, and a lot of the claims, I mean, uh, the, uh, the activities of Clarence Thomas's wife have been the source of a lot of this, but uh, his spouses of justices have been uh, involved in things related to the court and we don't tend to apply uh, ethical rules. So Ruth Gottbutter Ginsburg's husband, Marty, uh, was a major partner in a law firm that had cases before the Supreme Court and uh, and so forth. And nobody considered that to be an ethical problem, but it it isn't the substance. The question is whether there's going to be some outside entity with the power to tell a justice that he or she can't cast a vote in a particular case. And I tell you, I trust the justices more in the bright light of day to comply with the, with the rules than I do some outside entity deciding whether justices can vote in particular cases. That is a very dangerous thing. It means that the Supreme Court is no longer the final word. It's going to be whoever that entity is, is going to be able to decide cases under the table by you know, manipulating uh, ethical rules, which is going to be very easy uh, uh, to do. Uh, I, think it's a, I think it's a very bad idea. Michael, what the senators are proposing here is it constitutional because it seems to me that what you have is one branch of government involving itself in the internal affairs of another branch. Probably. So it is constitutional. No, I said it's probably unconstitutional. Unconstitutional. Okay. Probably. Would a Supreme Court end up having to decide that ironically or? Probably. Head explodes. (laughs) It's turtles all the way down. It is. All right, wrap up. So, okay, so we've covered three cases. We've covered the uh, amicus. Anything else you'd like to uh, get into here? Um, no, I think we've probably filled the hour. Sounds good. Well, Michael, thanks for coming on. Thanks for explaining what's going on in the court. And uh, always uh, fascinated by the work you do, not just for Hoover, but also for the Stanford Law School. Thank you. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the world. 
If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover, I-N-S-T. I don't think Michael McConnell is on Twitter. In fact, I'd be shocked if he's on Twitter. He is not. That's why you're a wise academic, my friend. But you can keep track of him by signing up for Hoover's Daily Report, which comes to your inbox uh, each day. And you can find that by going to hoover.org as well. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with a new installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts, or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.